Hey, another great episode of Roundup is coming up next. If you like what you heard, please go online to redsearadio.org and donate, become a monthly sustaining member, and keep us on the air. Thank you and God bless. Good morning. It is Wednesday, October 5th, 2022. This is the Red Sea Roundup. Thank you for joining us. I'm your host, Deacon Mike Beauvais. Today, as always, we have a great show for you. In the second part of the show today, we have a conversation with Professor Jay Buczyczewski. He is a professor at the University of Texas in Austin, and his academic focus is the ethical basis of politics. He also has a blog under the name of The Underground Thomist. And uh, to, uh, today we're going to talk a little bit about ethics, morality, how this plays out in our culture. But we're also going to spend a little bit of time talking about his new book, How and How Not to Be Happy. The second part of our show this morning is pre-recorded, so we won't be able to take any calls. But the first part is live, so if you have anything that you would like, to uh, tell us about what's going on in your parish, feel free to give us a call. 85-LOVE-RED-SEAS, the number, 855-683-7332. I want to welcome all our listeners on KEDC 88.5 FM, Hearn Bryan College Station. Also, welcome to our Central Texas listeners on KYAR 98.3 FM, Lorena Waco. And also our listeners in Palestine on KINF 107.9 FM. M. And since we've mentioned KYAR in Lorena Waco, we happen to have Deacon Robin Waters on in the phone from there. So good morning, Deacon Robin. Good morning, Deacon Mike. It's nice to hear your voice. It is nice to talk to you also. It's been such a long time since I've seen you since that's what, Saturday? <laughs> Saturday, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so got to be together at the convocation with the bishop. And a wonderful presentation by uh, Bishop Walk from uh, Pensacola, Tallahassee. Uh, he was absolutely fantastic. Yeah, I truly enjoyed it and learned a lot from his from his presentation, for sure. So, uh, Deacon Robin, what's going on in your area that you would like to tell the listeners about? Well, there's a lot of things going on, but I'm going to focus on just three things that are going on this week that hopefully the listeners can uh, come and be a part of. Um, at St. Philip Catholic Church in China Spring, they are having their Oktoberfest this Saturday. They're having theirs on Saturday, October 8th. Uh, serving starts at 11. And they're going to have a unique meal that I don't know if I've seen at a uh, church festival before. If they are having an authentic German meal of roast pork, sausage, German potato salad, coleslaw, sauerkraut, dessert, and all those fixings and including all the typical things you have at a festival, auctions and bake sales and kids games, live music. It sounds like it's going to be a great event. I, I'm, I'm going to miss out on it because I've got a different event I've got to be at a, that I'll announce here in a second in my at my parish in West, St. Mary's Church of the Assumption. But if you can uh, get out to China Springs at St. Philip's on Saturday, you will have a heck of a good time. And you will be eating German food, which is absolutely wonderful. <laughs> yes, for sure. Uh, and also, uh, another big festival going on this weekend, 
the Church of the Visitation in Westphalia will be celebrating their 115th annual picnic on Sunday, October 9th. And they're going to start drive through serving at 10, which is plenty early, and dine in at uh, 10.30. They're going to have, of course, the things I mentioned, live auction, raffle, games for the kids. But they're also going to have the Praha Brothers polka band playing. So that ought to be, be a lot of fun. Uh, the other thing I was going to mention is that my parish, St. Mary's Church of Assumption here in West, we're having a very powerful retreat starting on Friday afternoon. Uh, starts at 5 o'clock on Friday afternoon, and then on Sunday it goes from 8 to noon. Saturday. And we have, yeah, Saturday, I'm sorry. Did I say Sunday? Yes, sir. Uh, Rwandan genocide survivor Amaki Lee is going to come to our parish and is just going to give us a great witness of the life-saving power of faith in the rosary. Uh, she survived in a small cramped bathroom for 91 days with seven other women while all these vigilantes were searching for them and killing her family and loved ones. And uh, just a great message, a powerful message of, uh, of forgiveness and the mercy of God. So. If you, if you can be a part of it, just come on out uh, Friday at 5 or Saturday at 8. We're going to start with Mass on Saturday, and the actual retreat starts at 9. So uh, anybody that's uh, in our listening area, yeah, come on up to West, and uh, you, you, won't, you won't be uh, disappointed. Thank you, Deacon Robin. And um, stay on the phone for just a second. Um, I am supervised this morning by Dennis Maka. Uh, he shoot drew the short straw. So, uh, Dennis, I wanted to talk a Good little morning. bit about the benefit dinner, and it's going to be happening two days in a row, one here and one in Waco. So That's correct. You want to talk a little bit about that? We are very excited to have in our community Father Richard Simon from our show, Father Simon Says, that's on our weekday uh, platform at 2 p.m., on all our stations uh, through via the relevant radio uh, crowd. And so we're very excited to have Father Richard Simon coming in for our benefit dinners. As you know him, he likes to uh, refer to himself or others refer to him as the Reverend Know-It-All. And he, he always <laughs> says that with a grain of salt because he, you know, he says what he doesn't know, he can always make up. So he is going to come in and give a presentation on how uh, his guide to reading the Bible, the big book on the coffee table. So we're very excited about having uh, coffee and drink and other drinks and uh, adult beverages and uh, great food at each of our locations. You had mentioned both are back to back. November 17th is here in the Brazos Valley. November 18th, which is a Friday night, will be there in Central Texas with uh, Deacon Robin and his crowd. Um, I'm really looking forward to this. How are we doing on pre-sales for tickets? We are actually halfway to the capacity. After one week of opening the sales here, uh, we are halfway at capacity in our Bryan College Station area, about at one-third to capacity already in Central Texas. So, um, my goodness, it is amazing how fast this, this benefit dinner is filling up. So, we're looking at a 40-table capacity, and we're right almost halfway in Central Texas, and we are at halfway or just over halfway uh, here in the Bryan College Station area. So they can go to our website at redsearadio.org, click on the uh, the black banner across the, the top of the page, 
with Father Rich Simon's face on it, and you can reserve a table or your individual tickets right there. And I would recommend just go ahead and reserve a table and invite your friends, and they will not be disappointed. It's going to be a very fun evening. Uh, people quite often uh, say how how much fun they have at our benefit dinner, and it's not a lot like a, the other benefit dinners. We really focus on you having a good time and you learning some great information about your faith and uh, great food, great fun, great fellowship, as we always say. Very good. Deacon yeah. Robin, you got anything to add to that? I'll just uh, echo what Dennis said. It's going to be a wonderful event. Father Simon is, you know, so knowledgeable, but he's also so funny. If you ever listen to his show, it's he's always enjoyable, and I, I can't wait to see it. Uh, what he has to say. And every person I talk to that's already told me they're coming, they're like, oh, I can't wait to, to listen to Father Simon and to meet him. So, yeah, yeah everybody, and if, go ahead, listeners, and please go ahead and uh, book your tables ASAP. We don't want to have anybody left out. So, and hopefully we'll be we'll be filled up in the next couple of weeks. And if you've listened to Father Simon, you know there's no telling what direction the talk's <laughs> going to take. So <laughs> That's right. <laughs> I, I have my uh, 10, 5, and 1-minute countdown uh, timer uh, signs ready to go in case he decides he wants to go two hours, but uh, he probably could. And I think oh, yes. everyone there would want him to, because uh, he's just such a humble person and down to earth and just, uh, just, just a wonderful guy. And um, so easy to talk to on the phone and just to, to visit with. And so he's really looking forward to coming down to Texas. Wonderful. Now, briefly, Dennis, uh, give us an update on victory sports. Well, Victory Sports basketball registration is open now through the end of October. We are filling up in our spots, and we want to fill up as many teams as we possibly can. There is no limit that I know of that we're going to place on this. So however many people we can get to sign up, sign your kids up from uh, grades one through six, uh, whatever ages that might be. Um, and we're looking to have some incredible league play like we're having right now in volleyball and football. And the kids are learning so much about their faith. And you know what I'm so excited about also is we're getting families to come together and have great fellowship during the practices, during the games. Um, and, you know, we're getting some families that are are being involved that aren't typically involved in other parish activities. So it's we're really reaching out to people to come get involved with their faith and learn more about their faith and Victory Sports is a really great vehicle for that. So we're really looking forward to that spreading into other areas beyond these first seasons here in the Brazos Valley. So uh, victoryyouthsports.org is a great place to find out more information, to register and uh, sign your kids up. That's victoryyouthsports.org. Thank you, Dennis. Now, I wanted to mention for the people here in uh, the Bryan College Station area, St. Anthony's is starting their Eucharistic revival participation. It begins this Friday. Uh, we're going to have something every first Friday. Mm-hmm. Uh, this Friday at 6 p.m., uh, we will begin with uh, uh, exposition. Uh, we will have a sh- gospel reading, a short reflection on the real presence, and then we will have little bit of time for just silent adoration. Uh, we will end with benediction, and you'll be able to go out and go to First Friday in downtown Bryan. So if you uh, are really interested, please uh, just come. Uh, 
next month we'll have to have RSVPs, but this uh, month just come for All adoration. Are welcome, uh, everybody's no welcome. No matter your parish, no matter your area, right. no matter no matter your religion. As a exactly. Of fact. Yes, everybody's welcome. Awesome. Uh, and uh, one other thing I wanted to talk about this morning uh, today: the church celebrates the memorial of Saint Faustina Kowalska, and for those of you that don't recognize the name, I know for a fact that all of you have probably seen the image of Jesus walking out from a dark background in white vestments with a red and white ray coming out of his chest. The image of divine mercy. The image of divine mercy, which was actually given to St. Faustina in a vision, and um, she had it painted exactly as it was described. Um, And uh, she was directed to place on the bottom of the painting the words, Jesus, I trust in you. So if you've seen a divine mercy image, you will have seen this. And the thing that has always struck me about the image of divine mercy is that the combination of the idea that God's mercy is infinite, that as long as we ask for it, we can receive it, mm-hmm. but it requires trust. And so those words, Jesus, I trust in you, is probably one of the best prayers that we can ever pray because it is a constant reminder to ourselves that we should trust in Jesus. And if we trust in Jesus, his mercy is guaranteed. One other thing about St. Faustina is when she originally wrote down her visions, they were written down in Polish. And so for the longest time, the translations into Italian were mistranslated. Hmm. And so uh, the uh, her apparitions were suppressed, her diary was suppressed, and uh, the church was cautious. It wasn't until Pope John Paul II, St. Pope John Paul II, said that that's not what the translation was because he was able to read them in the original Polish. And so the um, her diaries were made public and veneration to the Divine Mercy expanded from there to the point that we now have a Divine Mercy Sunday following Easter Sunday. We're going to be back on the other side of our break with Professor Jay Buczyczewski. Look forward to you all listening to him. It's going to be wonderful. The Underground Thomist. And we are here with Professor Buczyczewski, and we're going to be talking a little bit about uh, his background and about his new book, How to Be and How Not to Be Happy. Now, uh, Professor Buczyczewski, before we get into this, um, you're a professor at 
University of Texas. What brings you to Texas A&M today? Well, because I was invited by folks here at uh, Texas A&M to give two talks. I spoke at the Howdy Luncheon of returning faculty about how and how not to be happy, as a matter of fact. That's uh, something that's sponsored by the Christian Faculty Network. And I'm going to be speaking tonight to um, a student organization. It's the local chapter of the Thomistic Institute. So I'm going to be speaking to them about the revenge of conscience. What happens to us when we pretend that we don't know what we really do know. Sounds like a fascinating topic. Well, I hope so. <laughs> it fascinates me. <laughs> That's the problem. The speaker always has to be careful that it fascinates the audience, too. <laughs> yes, uh, it is possible to get so involved in your topic that you don't look out to see if everybody's asleep or not. Well, you know, it's a funny thing. I can be oblivious to many, many things. If somebody is waving at me and says, you only have five minutes left, I may not notice. But I notice if people are paying attention. I notice their facial expressions. I'm, I'm really tuned into that stuff. That is excellent for a speaker. Now, uh, one more thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're... Website is Underground Thomist. That's is right. Is that in part due to where you teach? Well, it's not just where I teach. I mean, it, it it's true that the University of Texas is getting pretty woke. Um, and you, anybody who's 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 something like a Thomist uh, or a Catholic or a Christian, can expect to take some uh, to take some some bullets from time to time. But it's but it's really academia in general. You know, it's a joke. I am a, I am an out-of-the-closet Christian. I'm an out-of-the-closet natural law thinker. I'm an out-of-the-closet Thomist. And, uh, but because that can get you in trouble, I just call it the underground Thomist, as though I was in a bunker someplace writing my blog. Now, for our listeners who might not be aware with the term, when we talk about a Thomist, what are we talking about? We're talking about followers of the thinking of the great Thomas de Aquino, uh, Thomas Aquinas. Yes, and uh, I've noticed uh, you have a blog on uh, your website, and a lot of your blogs follow the query uh outline that St. Thomas used to use when he approached a topic. Well, now that's true, but uh, but except for a couple of them that I've written deliberately in dialogue form, uh, the ones that where I say query, reply, um, it wasn't because I was following Thomas Aquinas, but because somebody actually wrote me a letter. And that was the question. And I I, I have to edit it pretty liberally so right. it fits into the space. But um, but that's really, a, that's a real query from a real person. Uh, the thought I had reading some of your blogs is that this notion that we continue asking ourselves questions in order to arrive at an answer is something that, especially in academia, isn't used as much anymore. We basically just present information to memorize rather than forcing our students or even ourselves to continue asking questions about a topic. Yeah, I am surprised about about some of this. It's um, and the the problem begins in much earlier. It begins in high school. We don't really teach students to read. My students are are quite intelligent, um, and and yet if I ask them to read an essay by somebody or a classic work, if I say if they can tell me what the author believed, but they. Um, it, it doesn't seem to occur to them to read to find out why he believed it. 
Or if I say, I want you to read to understand why the guy believed it. What argument would he give? They say, do you mean like, what is his social background? What is his social class? What is his race? I say, no, those might be motivations. Those aren't reasons. Those aren't something you could say to somebody else in answer to the question, why should I believe what you believe? And so this is hard. Since, since we aren't teaching people like that in high school, they come to college and they're not prepared for, for college. The, this, this great opportunity when their minds are opening up like flowers and they're ready to be shaped, they're plastic, they can learn all kinds of new things. Uh, they've wasted so many, they, we've, our schooling has wasted so many of, the, of, of those precious years already by the time they come to college. Is this, in your opinion, somehow related to our social media where everything's basically reduced to like and dislike well, it's, re, it's, yeah, it's connected with our social media in a lot of ways. It's not just the like and the dislike thing, although that's a problem. I agree with you. It's also just that people aren't reading. They aren't reading. They aren't in the reading habit. It's a very different thing to read Twitter, a Twitter feed and to read a book. And you might think, well, I'm, I, I'm getting all this information. Many older people don't understand this. They, they listen to young people and they seem to know so many things. Well, the fact that they've heard about something happening in Afghanistan or heard about something happening in China or they've heard what Elon Musk said is different than saying that they actually understand any of the background of Western civilization and, 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 and have learned anything about the arguments that shape us. That's, uh, that's a different kind of thing. So, um, and it's, it is, you would think, well, the, the less intelligent students uh, uh, don't read, but the more intelligent students do very often uh, it's, it's, it's equal. None of them, none of them read. As a matter of fact, I found that sometimes if I'm teaching honor students, a lot of the grade for many professors, a lot of the grade that the student gets is based on whether the student agrees. And so a lot of what ought to be learning is really socialization. It's really being, being, being learning to, to, to say what the professor says. And so, uh, and they've done that very well. And so they're now in honors classes and they think we are very smart, and so we don't need to read. Whereas my more challenged students, who, um, who are not honor students, may actually read this stuff a lot better and end up understanding it a lot better because they don't have that obstacle of pride. I'm not pointing fingers, by the way, because that was my big problem when I was a young man. I was so full of pride. I wanted to be, me to be God and not God to be God, and that's how in those days I... For, uh, for, for some years, I lost my faith utterly. Now, I would imagine you teach philosophy, and philosophy basically is the bedrock of Western civilization's thought. Well, yeah, philosophy and Christian theology. I, I am jointly appointed in a philosophy department. I don't want to, want to sail under false pretenses. My home base and the one that first hired me was a political science department. That was my degree. But philosophy is what I do. I do ethical philosophy and I do political philosophy. I study the ethical foundations of social life. And that includes natural law theory and things like that. And if you really want to understand politics, you've got to understand natural law. If you want to understand natural law, you've got to understand the virtues. If you want to understand the virtues, you have to understand human psychology. If you want to understand human psychology, you have to understand the creator. So that takes you into all, for me, that takes you into all kinds of things. But um, um, the short answer is yes, philosophy is only my secondary department, but philosophy is what I do. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, one of the things I find interesting, uh, the way you laid that out is ultimately, you know, if you 
parse the topic of natural law, philosophy, and things, you ultimately end up with the understanding of a creator god. This was the case for Plato. It was the case for um, Socrates. Their understanding was that you had to have that for virtues or anything else to make any sense. Yeah. Yes. There's a there's a sense in which that's true. There's there's another sense in which it isn't true. I mean, I sometimes have an atheist student who will, who will take my course on natural law, and he, some of it makes sense to him. And he says, "Well, I, you know, I'm an atheist, and I can see that this is right and that this is wrong. Do I have to believe in God to know that?" And I say, "No. This God, according to the classical natural law tradition, gave you a conscience." which isn't just something pumped in from the outside. That's why you can recognize this. It's not because you've learned some theory or learned some theology or learned about God that you can see a difference between, between good and evil. However, if you try to make sense of how is it that I can tell the difference between good and evil and you cut out the creator, it's not going to make sense anymore. If man is just the meaningless and purposeless result of a process that did not have him in mind, then your conscience isn't what it appears to be. It isn't telling you anything true. It's just a bunch of feelings you can't have help having because of your genes or something. And so, um, and so you can either then say, I believe that this is meaningful, which implies a designer, or you can say, no, I don't. And then it's very hard to understand how anything really is right and wrong. And I would imagine that morality in any form or fashion ultimately is going to butt heads with the idea that there is a transcendent good, that we have an understanding that good is good outside of something other than my own decision making. Yeah, something isn't good because I decide that it's good. Right. If if my mind is working well, I decide I recognize that it is good because it is good. Right. And it 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 is um I know it through my experience, but that reality that my I'm having experience of transcends me. Now, you said you're uh Education was in political science, uh, history. Uh, political philosophy, mostly, yeah. And um, political philosophy uh, is not a term that we use much anymore. No. I'm not sure there's such a thing in our political system right now as philosophy. Yeah, it's a strange. It is a it is a strange thing. I say to people, the people say, "Well, what do you study?" And I say, "I'm interested in the ethical foundations of politics." And they say, "What? You mean that there's an ethical politician?" <laughs> but uh, do you still teach a course uh, uh, on a regular basis in political ethics? Not per se. What I'll, I'll here's some examples of things that I teach. I teach a course on natural law theory. This focuses mostly on Thomas Aquinas' treatise on law. Now that deals with law, it deals with politics, it leads with, with the f structure of government along with a lot of other things. Um, what else do I teach? I teach a course on, um, on the American founders, on the debates over whether the new constitution should be ratified, and that takes us into a little bit of political philosophy. I teach a course on religion and politics in American thought, starting in the colonies and going all the way through to the culture wars. And, uh, you know, things like that. I teach a course on politics, law, and moral character. And um, 
and and so forth. It's fascinating to me, uh, especially reading American history and the interconnection on both the plus side and the negative side on religion that played a role in uh, forming the political system. Yes. The, one of the times that I taught a course on this, I included, it, it was a course called, I, I call it, it's, it's not the catalog title, but it's my name for it, What the Founders Were Reading. You know, we're always reading what they wrote. What did they read? Well, they read all kinds of stuff, Roman Republican history and, and Aristotle and, and this and that and the other. And, um, but one of the things that they read and the, or that they heard were religious discourses like what were called election day sermons. You're newly elected to your state legislature and they invite a, they invite a minister in to talk for a couple of hours to you about your political duties uh, in, the, in the sight of God. My students were astonished. They said, you know, they'll say, sometimes they'll say, uh, I didn't know that the early Americans were religious. People, this is, this is cut out of the textbooks. Yes. I, I was asked to rewrite a high school textbook once by one of the national publishing firms. And one of the goals of her rewriting was supposed to be um, to explain the language of the Declaration of Independence. Well, okay, it, it speaks of the laws of nature and nature's God. It says that we are endowed with certain unalienable rights by our creator. So I said, well, unalienable means it comes, you know, it, you're, it's, it's, uh, uh, it comes with being human. You can't get rid of these, these rights. Uh, the creator means God. My editor just had a fit. He said, you can't say God? Uh, I said, well, but that's what the language means. Here's the goal. I have to say what the language means. He says, can't you say good or something? So I guess we're supposed to tell the students, um, uh, you are endowed by good with certain unalienable rights. Which brings us right back to the question, what is good? But uh, I wanted to talk a little bit also about, you just wrote a book. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not even sure it's out. Uh, it is. It is now out for it purchase. Is, it is out for purchase from Regnery Publishing. All right. And it's called How and How Not to Be Happy. That's right. How and How Not to Be Happy. After I gave it the title, I discovered that there were other books out there with titles like How to Be Happy and one called How Not to Be Happy. But <laughs> this is How and How Not to Be Happy. There you go. <laughs> so uh, what made you decide to write the book in the first place? Well, I had, I've been writing a series of commentaries on Thomas Aquinas. And uh, the first one was on his treatise on law, then there was on his virtue ethics, then there was on, uh, on, his, on his treatise on happiness and ultimate purpose. Well, okay, there's about 666 pages of close line-by-line commentary. And I was pleased with the book, but I thought, well, how many people are going to read this? And this is important stuff. We, we all want to flourish. We want to be fulfilled. We want to be happy. Um, so I wanted to bring this to a broader audience and um, wrote, I won't say I'm just channeling Thomas Aquinas here, although he powerfully influenced me. It's, um, but it's a Thomist book. And, uh, and I'm, just, I'm just trying to deal with the issue in a way that people can understand. I've found it fascinating because, you know, I saw the title and uh, as a Catholic Christian, of course, my view of you know how to be happy is um, strictly following God's will in my life to the best of my ability. But the question you posed in the first chapter, why is how to be happy or, or fulfilled even a question, struck me as interesting. 
because we all think about how am I going to be happy, but all of us have this idea that we already know it. A lot of us think that we already know it. All I need to do is get stuff. Well, that's that's one of the prevailing theories, right? That I need to that material wealth or material possessions is happiness. That's one of them. So I so I have a chapter shooting down that idea. Now, look, every every error has to have some grain of truth in it, sure, or it couldn't fool anybody. And liars know this too. They pack as much truth into their lies as they can before the little twist that takes you in. Um, uh, so we, if there's no such thing as a truth that can't be abused. So, all right, what's the grain of truth in the idea that wealth will make you happy? Well, I do need to have food to eat. I do need to have shelter. I need, I do need to have clothes to wear. I need to be able to feed my children. So of course I need some material things. I mean, I'm not an angel. I'm an embodied being. My body is material stuff. My body needs other material stuff, but it, we, it's easy to leap from that to the idea that the more of that stuff I have, the happier I'll be. And it doesn't work like that. Aristotle even said, uh, good fortune, and he was talking about material good fortune, good fortune in excess might even better be called bad fortune. And we know that's true. You know, so think of all the stories of people who won the lottery and their lives go to pot. Yes. Or people that have millions and millions of dollars and everything imaginable that commit suicide because they're absolutely... Commit suicide. And it's true that the suicide rates in wealthy high-status communities are higher, significantly higher. One writer says that they're so... It's not just wealth. They're also highly status conscious, keeping up with the Joneses. And it's like lifelong middle school. Now, that's a chilling thought. Yes. Uh, Now... What is the proper approach to seeking happiness as compared to the wrong approach? The proper approach to seeking it or the proper approach to investigating it? You mean seeking it? Seeking it. Well, um, I, in the book, I go through lots and lots of wrong answers. Right. But I try to identify the grain of truth in each of the wrong answers. Um, in the end, what you find, and this was pretty much the conclusion of most of the great thinkers in history, Aristotle more or less said this, other people did. You need, uh, the paramount consideration is good character because if you don't have the virtues, none of that other stuff is going to do you a bit of good. You can even be ruined by your friends. You know, you can be, you, you don't know what to do with this good stuff and how to keep it, how to, how to use it so that it's good for you. The other thing that you need though is, yeah, you do need, favorable material circumstances. You need, to, you need to be not being starved, not being tortured on the rack, and so on and so forth. Now, many of the philosophers stopped there. They said, okay, you need, basically, you need good character and good fortune. You need virtue and you need luck. Well, all right. <laughs> There's something to be said for that. It's not a bad answer. It has a certain heft to it. It tells you something about how to conduct yourself, how to teach your children, how to how to how to how to do things. But it also uh, it also leaves something to be desired because this happiness that you get, even apart from the fact that you might not have luck, all right, I might be starving. Uh, it's the the other problem though is that I can have good fortune and good circumstances and still not be happy. They in fact. Without the one thing needful, I will be unhappy. There is some longing. 
let's take human love, for instance. Um, this is one of the best examples of this. Dante knew this. You, I, 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 I have been married for 51 years. It's wonderful and love is sweet. But um, two people cannot be everything to each other. And the more I love my wife, she finds the same thing, the more she loves me, the more we find that that love, rather than satis... The, the, the desire for the other person can be satisfied by the other person. But that desire stirs up another desire that cannot be satisfied by the other person. And because of that, a lot of people, they get confused about this. They think that mysterious longing for something else is a desire for the other person, and then the other person didn't satisfy it, and so I guess I'm married to the wrong person or something like that. You know, they, they, they divorce. Um, but that longing is really for God. The desire for beauty. You think, oh, what I desire is beauty. I surround myself with beautiful things. Okay, the desire for beauty can be satisfied by beautiful things. But the desire for beauty stirs up this other transcendental longing that isn't just for beautiful things, it's for the source of beauty. Even the desire for wealth, St. Augustine says, it's because we're longing for the one who is all abundant. Or even the desire for power, the one who wants power wants, he really wants infinity and eternity. And he's, he's just going about it the wrong way. Plato got that. No. So, so I think that if you want the, if you want to be, if you're, if you want the imperfect, fragmentary, flawed, insufficient happiness that is attainable in this life by your own powers, cultivate good fortune and hope for luck. But if you want more, if you want that perfect happiness that lulls all desire and leaves nothing further to be desired, you are going to have to seek God with all your heart. One of the things you were talking about virtue, and this again is something that in our culture we don't talk much about. Uh, we talk a lot about self-esteem. <laughs> yes. We don't talk a lot about virtue. Mm -hmm. Now, self-esteem in itself is not going to make me happy because it's a lot of times based on something illusionary. Yes. Whereas virtue is something real. Yeah. Would you talk about the correlation between those two. Well, sure. You know, there's, a, like with every other one of these errors, the idea that happiness lies in self-esteem. This isn't totally mistaken. If you hate yourself, if you despise yourself, if you have no confidence in yourself, um, you're going to have difficulties. But on the other hand, you aren't the be-all and the end-all. And ultimately, what you, what your confidence has to be founded on is the real attainment of, of character and, uh, and, uh, and, uh, and talents. You know, some psychologists who studied this set up test groups. They had some, uh, some students who were doing only middling work, and they, they had special self-esteem exercises to boost their self-esteem. The theory was that it'll improve their, their performance. They had others in which they didn't. The ones who, who, um, whose self-esteem they boosted like crazy did worse. They thought, see, I'm good enough already. I think that, uh, you know, especially when you're talking about ethics and virtue and these things that move us towards an understanding that there's something good to be found in the world, that is 
other than what the world has to offer, which <laughs> is all these things that we're talking about right now anyway. Mm -hmm. But the notion that I can be happy with just the things that are in front of me if I have enough of it, mm -hmm. power, steam, things like this, it would seem to me, we were talking earlier about, you know, we know the answer, but we refuse to admit it to ourselves. Yeah. Isn't that partly part of this thing that we know that none of these things are actually going to make us happy? Well, you know, we do and we don't. Um, everybody's heard the expression, money can't buy happiness. Uh, and everybody thinks that it's a pious thing to say. You know, it's a virtue, it's a virtue signaling kind of thing to say. I can remember my parents telling me money can't buy happiness. And I was thinking, but well, I, there's, there isn't anything on the store shelf labeled happiness that you can go and pay for, but I can buy things that will make me happy, right? I didn't understand this. When I ask my, my students sometimes, well, well what, what is happiness? They give all the same kinds of answers Aristotle students gave, except they don't mention wealth usually. They'll say pleasure makes you happy, friends make you happy, you know, um, um, being liked makes you happy, this makes you happy, that makes you happy. Hardly anybody ever says wealth, and yet I know that's what they really believe, because if I say, well, what's your major? Oh, I'm doing this. Why are you pursuing that major? Because that way I'll be able to pull down the big bucks. So really, they won't say it. They won't maybe even admit it to themselves, but they believe that wealth is happiness. So at one level, they sort of know it or sort of think they ought to believe it, but they live as though they believe the opposite. This is not needless to say, not all my students, but many of right. them make this mistake. Now, we've been talking about happiness this whole time, mm -hmm. but how would you actually define happiness? Is it just a feeling that I have that... No, I would not say happiness is, um, is a feeling. I, I think it has something to do with the feelings. If somebody felt lousy all the time, it would be very difficult to, to call them happy. But happiness, but you can feel good and not be happy. Uh, the, 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 the philosophers had a number of arguments about this, some of which were kind of paradoxical. Uh, you can feel pleasure and displeasure at the same time, for instance. You can, um, you can be terribly thirsty so that your throat is hurting and, um, and you drink a glass of water and it's wonderful and gives you pleasure, but the pain is the very condition of the pleasure. Uh, so you can have pleasure and displeasure at the same time, but you can't have unhappiness and happiness at the same time. So happiness must be something different than pleasure. Happiness is flourishing. It is doing well. It is being fulfilled. It is, and ultimately that comes down to a certain activity. It's not a feel, it's not something we're feeling, but something we're doing we are living a life that is organized around, um, around, around uh, true principles and guided by reason. How much does a sense of gratitude play into this notion of happiness? Well, I think it, I think it has a lot to, it, to do with it since I, I only deal with the, the ultimate gratitude here has to be toward God. And I only sort of... I even promised my, my readers, I'm only going to creep up on this stuff about God. If you don't want to read that, it's only in the last couple of chapters. You can even cut those off and stop before you get there. If that had been the whole book, I would have said a lot about gratitude because gratitude is terribly important. And it's also paradoxical. Now, I haven't been able to track down this quote, and so maybe he didn't really say it. But it is claimed by some that Nietzsche, the God is dead guy, okay, yeah. a German, German uh, philosopher, a uh, German writer in the, in the, uh, in the um, 19th century, 
uh, that he said that sometimes he was overwhelmed with gratitude. Now, wait a minute. Gratitude is not like just feeling good today. I, it's, it's directional. You have to be grateful to someone. And he claimed that there was nobody to be grateful to. So how could he even make sense of that gratitude? Gratitude is to someone, and we won't even fully experience and properly experience that gratitude unless we know to whom it's directed. Now, all of us strive for happiness. Yeah. Would you say this is a do-it-yourself project, or is there something else that we need to involve in our search for happiness? I don't think anything about happiness or, or, or very much of anything about human life is a do-it-yourself project. It's, we, are, we are social beings. Um, when I was young, I, I heard that, and I didn't understand it. I thought that meant we had a social instinct, like cows, you know? They hang around each other. If, one cow, if two cows are pointing in one direction and the third cow is pointing in the other direction, it turns around. Most of the cows on the hill will be facing the same way. They, they just like to hang around. But... Um, but uh, we're social in a, in a deeper sense. We n- require each other to flourish. We, for human beings, um, the good life is not even good unless we can share it with others. And this is, and a large part of this, and the cows know nothing of this, is that we desire not just you know mates or food or something like that. We want to know the meaning of things. We want to know the truth, especially the truth about God, and to shape our lives according to this. And learning the truth is a social endeavor. I depend on, on others. And living by the truth is a social endeavor. Marriage is a lot harder if you're in a society that doesn't recognize sensible norms of marriage. You know, these are all, these things, we all depend on each other. And... Um, and so I see, yeah, so I think that's, that's very important. One of the things you just mentioned is even the things that we know are ultimately dependent on others. Nobody goes and starts all over again investigating science. We count on the science that's already been done to build on it rather than starting the first experiment and going on. But the same thing, I think, uh, and going back to um, cultures. Yeah. If we lose sight of the history that has built that culture, I would think it would be harder to be happy in the place that you are because you really don't know why you're there. Yeah, I think that's true. One of the problems, a number of my students, I'm speaking this time of of, uh, students who are of faith. Once they catch on that it's safe to talk to me, you know, they may come by and talk. And sometimes they'll say, and because I write books, you know, I get letters sometimes from students and other people, and they'll say, um, well, I've, I've expressed this to my friends, and they say, come on, you know, history, you've lost, you've lost, history's against you. Well, what they mean by history is the last 15 minutes. Yeah. What they mean is the fashion of, of this day. And um, there's no sense of actual history here. If we were going to talk about history, some of these, like things in the sexual revolution, uh, contradict things that have been have been understood by human beings for 5,000 years. So if we were going to talk about history here, we'd certainly be giving a different answer to the question about does this make sense? Especially about be, uh, being on the wrong side of history. Being on the wrong side. Thanks. That's the Thank you. That's the phrase I was trying to remember. You're on the wrong side of history. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, 
we've, we have, we've, we've lived this way for 15 minutes and 5,000 years ago the other way. And we say that, that now we're the right side of history. Right. We define the meaning of history. I've always wondered what the people at the decline of the Roman Empire thought about history, you know, and the world's coming to an end because their world was technically coming to an end and things were no longer the way they understood them to be. Yeah, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned the, the uh, Roman civilization because the, the first real systematic philosophy of history was a Christian philosophy of history that St. Augustine in the City of God, his great work, he, uh, he, he, because, you know, the, the, the pagans, they thought either that history is a meaningless alternation of events or that it's things going around in a cycle. You know, you the golden age, the, the, the iron age, the stone age, you know, everything crashes and then you start again with the new golden age. The idea that maybe it starts somewhere and it goes somewhere and it has a, a climax and a resolution like a novel that this is, that history is a story and there's somebody telling that story. It has an author you know, he worked that out. The whole idea that we have, even anti-Christian movements like contemporary progressivism, the very idea of historical progress, um, well, it's a heresy if you think of it as being human beings can completely overcome the, the effects of the fall. But but it's, it's like all heresies, it trades on Christianity. It's a parasite on the idea that, yes, history is going somewhere. And this is uh, one of the things... Uh, the fact that we use the word progressive for people that tend to dismiss not just tradition, history, and things like this, that they're moving in a new direction. Well, progressive comes from the idea of progress. Right. Where are you moving to? Where are you moving to? Uh, it, some, of the, um, some of the thinkers who have advanced this notion of progress were very cagey about this. They didn't want. They didn't want to say, "Well, is going here," because um, they thought that the goal also evolves. The back when Clarence Thomas was had been nominated for the Supreme Court, uh, and a, a young senator, the chair of the Judiciary Committee, whose name maybe some of us know, um, said that uh, that he was a bad fellow and shouldn't be uh, shouldn't be confirmed because he believed in this very strange thing called natural law. Now, the interesting thing is that the senator said, oh, I believe in natural law too, but it's an evolving natural law. It's an evolving natural law. Now, and it's, and it progresses. Now, if you throw out the natural law, then you've thrown out the yardstick be, by which you can tell whether something is progress or regress. Yes. So, I mean, it's, it's crazy. Now, Back to your book, I tend to go off on tangents. <laughs> so do uh, I. We need help to be happy. We yes. talked already about it's not a do-it-yourself project. Right. What kind of help and where do we find it? Well, there are some wrong ideas about where to, send, where to find help. For instance, the, the great movement on the horizon now is uh, transhumanism. People think um, just reform didn't work. Just new economics didn't work. What we've got to do is change human nature. Back one of my one of I was enthralled when I was a young man and I was a socialist in those days and Michael Harrington the uh, uh, socialist speaker came and talked at my university and said um, and said that he thought that once there was socialism we wouldn't have a problem with selfishness anymore because there'd be a change in human nature. Well, that was just 
uh, rosy-eyed overconfidence. But these guys think, no, human nature isn't going to change that easy, but we can change it. We'll monkey with human genes. We'll put chips inside our brains. We'll live in, we'll upload our minds into computers. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll, uh, we'll, we'll graft ourselves with, uh, with, with artificial devices. We'll do this. We'll do that. We'll, we'll fill the air in the factories with pheromones so the workers never want to go on strike. We will, um, we will rejigger the brains of soldiers so they don't have to sleep for days on end and we'll obey every order even if it's unconscionable. They think that this is gonna, these, are, these things are going to solve all the problems. And, you know, the government has invested in this. Oh, yes. The Department of Commerce at a conference some years ago about, quote-unquote, enhancing human performance. But this is the kind of stuff that it was about. It's, uh, and it's, it's, so there is this theory that we don't need any help. We can do it ourselves because we can reinvent our nature. Now, it's like the problem we were talking about with progress. If you throw out nature, then what is your standard by which you can say that this, this reinvention is a good one? But anyway, um, that all crashes. We've tried that before. That's the, that's the lesson of Babel yes. in, the book of, in the book of Genesis. We, we men will build a tower, tower, challenge heaven itself. We you know, can do this by ourselves. Yes. We can't. We can't. And ultimately, we're dependent on the grace of God. This is the Christian faith, that this longing that we have, you know, longings are not for nothing. Every longing is for something. Why do I desire food? Well, because there is food and I need it. I wouldn't have a generic desire for food unless there was such a thing as food and I needed it. If we have this longing for something, nothing in this created order can satisfy, then there must be something beyond the created order that can satisfy it. Now, if if we can't satisfy it by our own power, and yet it can be satisfied, and God gave it to us, he must intend us to satisfy it, then we depend on his power. And this is what the Christian hope is all about. We can't fix ourselves. But Jesus Christ took upon himself the burden of our brokenness and our sin, and we can rise to a new life in him. Which, and that is never completed in this life, but we will, it'll be complete in the next life and we'll see God himself. I find it fascinating how the ancient idea of Gnosticism (laughs) is so prevalent in modern thought that the material world that God created for us is a prison is a prison that's yeah. trapping us and that if we only work our way, like uploading our consciousness or whatever. Yes, yes, that's just like the idea. Oh, our spirit is this is this good thing that's trapped in this evil thing, matter, we got to get free of it. That's very much like 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 this. And also a lot of those Gnostics thought that there was there were world creators who created creators who created creators who 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 knew how many how many how many how many iterations down the line this world was. But it's like people who say, maybe we're in a virtual reality, which is playing in a computer in somebody else's virtual reality, which is playing in a computer in somebody else's virtual reality. All those ancient ideas are coming back in newfangled scientific clothes. Yes. And none of them are going to make us happy. None of them. Uh, Professor Buczyczewski, uh, our time is almost up. Uh, thank you very much for being here on the program. I would like for you in the last couple of minutes to tell our listeners, why they should buy your book. (laughs) Well, because we all want to be happy. Uh, Some of us try to cut the desire for happiness out of us because we think, I'm not going to be happy. I've just got to settle. You don't have to settle. Happiness is possible. But we have to be aware of what the the wrong paths are, what the blind alleys are. And... uh, 
and where the truth is. And that's what I tried to write. You know, I didn't just make this stuff up out of my head. And I've tried to stand on the shoulders of all the, all the great thinkers who've written about this over the years, but in a way that ordinary people can understand. And it's always helpful to remember that the only one who knows what is truly going to make us happy is the one who designed us in the first place. Yeah, that's right. And uh, as uh, Augustine said, our hearts are restless until they find rest in him. Again, doc, uh, Dr. Budzichewski, thank you very much for being on the program. Uh, fascinating. I could have continued this conversation <laughs> for quite a, a long time. But uh, thank you for being on the program. And uh, hopefully next time you're in town, you'll come back and we'll I'd talk enjoy about it. your next book. I'd enjoy it. It's, it's, uh, it's good to talk with people who, will, who are willing to put up with me for a few minutes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. I'm a 